This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning, and even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. I am delighted and proud to introduce him as Academy Award winner. And the Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to the winner. It's a tie. And any little girl who's who's practicing their speech on the telly, you never know. Mom, I just want an Oscar. I am Katie Rich. I'm here with Richard Lawson. Hello. And with David Canfield. Hello. We've lost Rebecca Ford for the week. She'll be back soon, we promise. But we do have plenty to talk about. We're going to pivot to TV for a minute because there are some interesting shows out there, even though the landscape feels a little barren in this continued strike world. We're going to check in on the strike um, and just get into a couple other lingering questions and developments about the awards calendar. Um, And so, David, I guess I'm going to start with you to talk about the strike because you came back from, of all places, Savannah, Georgia, um, (laughs) with with talk of the strike. Um, As the usual caveat, we're recording this on Monday. You'll hear this on a Thursday. The strike may well be over by then. Um, But you kind of think it might be for real this time, right? I heard that a lot of people do. So (laughs) therefore, I do. I'm not not the the primary source here by any (laughs) means. So yeah, I think that the main sentiment coming out of the festival, and, you know, I should explain, it's not like, you know, Savannah has a particular line to the Guild or the AMPTP, but there are just a lot of actors there, especially this past weekend, and a lot of reps there uh, who are tapped in. And it it did seem to me that there was a kind of expectation that we were winding down. Yeah. And, and not in the same way that, first of all, we had heard a few weeks ago when they had first come back to the table. I think there was just more wishful thinking there, more just assuming based on the way that the writers' talks had gone that, okay, this is wrapping up. This felt more tangible. This felt more informed by what people were hearing directly. And then the second situation here is the second element is, is timing. And yeah. for whatever reason, in Los Angeles, uh, and Richard, you may know this since you're in Los Angeles, you may feel yourself feeling like the year's about to end because in Hollywood, <laughs> as you approach Thanksgiving, for some reason, everything just shuts down. I cannot tell you how many times I heard, well, you know, Halloween's coming up, so they got to do it now or never. (laughs) Because Halloween is the acknowledged end of the calendar, yeah. (laughs) This default position that doesn't make any sense to me, but is the way that people are operating, which may be good for these negotiations, may be beneficial because there is a sense of urgency. I don't really understand it fully, but it is there. Yeah, I drove by the Disney uh, a lot, I guess, the other day, and I could see through the windows they were throwing sheets over the furniture, you know, like you would for the summer house. <laughs> There's just 
Because I think, you know, there's the concern about getting back into production, which I think is very real and very important, but kind of less salient to what we're talking about here. I feel some optimism, at least, that like the strike might take a while to end properly. It might take a while for production to gear back up. It might be hard to like get Abbott Elementary fired back up before January, you know, but, you know, Bradley Cooper can come out and talk about Maestro the minute the strike is over, right? Like that, that apparatus, I think, is very ready to gear back up the minute that it's possible. Yeah. I mean, everyone is lining up right now. They're getting ready. <laughs> the rope drop at Disneyland, it's it's coming. It, it is such an apt metaphor for what is happening <laughs> at this very moment. I'll leave it at that. Uh, yeah, I think we're just going to have to continue to live in hope. I mean, I was looking at like the Gotham Awards are scheduled for right after Thanksgiving. I think that's kind of the most immediate beneficiary of this finally wrapping itself up. Um, but, you know, the Q&A circuit, like all those rooms are like need to get booked. Like you guys doing these um, Q&As and moderating panels and stuff like that. I feel like you guys are going to get really busy really fast if this really does end. You know, in, in that space, I I, I think... It actually won't be as different pace-wise. You know, they have a lot of studios have, if anything, been pushing even harder with directors mm-hmm. and craftspeople just to get, you know, just to put anything out there to get industry members to see these movies. Obviously, it makes a big difference when, you know, instead of having a makeup artist on the panel for Maestro, you have Bradley Cooper there. That will yeah. bring more people out. But they have, you know, every studio who has been affected by this has really been working hard to get these screenings out there. I mean, I feel like the amount of Q&As that I've you know, either been involved in or know about has been even more uh, than yeah. past years so far. And you're having conversations with people you haven't talked to a million times. So maybe there's that benefit to that. Yeah, it's not the worst thing in the world. <laughs> Who are you guys dying to hear from once they are finally able to speak? Like, I feel like we talk about Bradley Cooper every week because he's such like, you know, he is maestro, basically. Um, but is there anyone else here like, I cannot wait to hear what this person has to say about their role in this movie? I mean, for, just for her sake, I'm just ready for Annette Benning to start telling tales of the sea, you know, <laughs> singing <laughs> singing her shanties about. <laughs> so is she. <laughs> Um, I also really want to hear from Jodie Foster, speaking yeah. of, of Nyad, you know, um, this is a significant role for her in that, you know, she is playing uh, an out lesbian uh, in a time mm-hmm. when Jodie is more or less out, find, you know, herself. And uh, I, I'm just curious to hear about if she wants to talk about it, maybe she won't. She's, you know, not the most public person. But yeah, I think Nyad is a movie that really, we've talked about it many times, like really benefits from the kind of relation of the film to real life um, because they're playing real life people, but also because I think these roles are of significance to Benning and Foster themselves. And yeah. And I think, you know, I'm, I really want to hear from Cooper, obviously. Um, and I'd really like to hear Emma Stone gush a lot about what it was to make poor things, which she has said, I think before the strike was like the most, like she's the most proud of it, of anything she's done yeah. uh, or the it's the most meaningful role for her or something. And I just it would be very curious to see if Emma Stone, who has already won before, um, but in her being her charming um, self and talking about, you know, the importance of, of poor things for her, uh, if she could push herself over the edge to a second win. Yeah, it's very interesting to imagine what a second Oscar campaign would look like for her specifically, because she's so young. It's such a hard thing to pull off. Like It's a delicate balance, but I'm sure she can do it. Yeah, uh, I'm looking forward on the actor side to hearing particularly from Jeffrey Wright 
and Andrew Scott, mm-hmm. two potential first-time nominees uh, whose trajectories I feel very invested in, um, and who were a part of movies that feel independent. You know, they feel very personal and major for their careers, major for their themselves as actors, and it feels like a real loss just that we haven't gotten to hear from them yet. So that's what I'm excited about. I would add Coleman Domingo in that group. Yes, exactly. Uh, and we like know what a great interview he is and how charming he is. And he's, you know, is ready to go out there and tell that story. Um, and I, w- I would throw out like everyone in the holdovers. Um, we've talked about the holdovers a lot. It's now out in theaters. Alexander Payne, you heard on the podcast earlier this week. Um, Dominic Sesta obviously is in his first film. We kind of know nothing about him except that he was like a New England prep school kid who then went on to this movie. Um, and then Dave Enjoy Randolph is somewhat known, but not all that known. And I think people who see that movie kind of can't help but come out and want to know more about her. And um, I want her to get that spotlight. Yeah, because it's ready for her to start charming people. I mean, I think her performance alone puts her at the top of the heap for supporting actress, especially now that Gladstone is. Right. But I think she could even push that that lead even further. Mm -hmm. You know, in in sort of, you know, being out there supporting the movie and talking up, uh, you know, the experience of making it. Something Rebecca's talked about too is people like Charles Melton. uh, Mm -hmm. You know, in the vein of Divine Joy Randolph, uh, discoveries who. Academy members don't really know who are going to be impressed by their performances and who it's much harder for them to have a claim in a race with big names if they're not able to get out there. You know, that's really where you see the gap. So he's another one. But then you also think about supporting actress, like when the Oppenheimer crew can kind of get back out there, like they they got the chance to do promo like Barbie did, but kind of nobody had really seen the movie yet. And so does Emily Blunt come roaring back? Do you got do you hear from like all the Oppenheimer bros um, once they can actually talk again? I think both Oppenheimer and Barbie are going to become really visible again, kind of just in time for that second wave campaign to start. Yeah, she's very charming, too, on a campaign trail. And listen, I mean, pain hustlers came and went and nobody counted it against her. So she's she's ready, ready to jump in there. Well, she's good in it. I watched it, pain hustlers this weekend and uh, the movie is not great. It's sort of a half realized version of, you know, other movies we've, or miniseries we've seen recently. But Blunt is just she's you know, so good in it. Yeah, she's really good in it. And and yeah, absolutely. Like you said, Katie, like the movie might have been dinged, but I think no one walked away from that being like, and Blunt was so bad. Not at all. Well, that's been like literally the story of her career. Like well, <laughs> maybe yeah. someday we'll go on a real Emily Blunt tangent, but she's so often been in movies that are beneath her. And you're like, well, she's great. I wish it was a better movie. And for once, Oppenheimer is actually a good movie. Well, it's kind of the inverse. I think she's great at Oppenheimer, but you know, that sentiment of, wow, she's going to get nominated for this, of all yeah, her performances. Yeah. It's, it is, yeah, Pain Hustlers is more of a showcase for her, and she shows what she can do in it. Um, yeah. I am really not a fan of that movie, but I'll, I'll leave it at that. Pain Hustlers. <laughs> yes, Pain Hustlers. Uh, yeah. And there's another performance in there that is, in my opinion, staggeringly miscalculated. Um, I want to jump to a movie that does have an agreement and isn't affected by the strike as much. And David, you talked you talked to Peter Sarsgaard, the star of memory, in Toronto. And yeah, then and you I, talked we, to him we, again recently. Yeah. So we did a panel uh in Savannah over the weekend. He was one of the honorees because that film had an interim agreement. And when we were backstage before we were about to start, I had asked him if there was an update on distribution, and he said yeah, we're going with ketchup. And I said, what? <laughs> Excuse me? And he said, ketchup. <laughs> we're really leaning into the interim agreement. Uh, <laughs> and then I learned that ketchup is, in fact, a distributor. 
So that's my little story about that. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah. So, I mean, clearly they're going for it. They're at the Savannah Film Festival. Like, Peter Sarsgaard is charming. And he and Maggie together, I think, are especially charming double act. And I don't know if she was there in Savannah as well. But, um, Richard, you kind of brought up the idea of, like, how that might shake up some of these races. Yeah. I mean, Sarsgaard won the Best Actor uh, Prize at Venice. He's very much in the mix for supporting. They're they're already kind of they've already, they launched a campaign for him before they had announced a distribu- distributor. Yeah. Um, you know, so I think that we you know we've talked about the sort of Downey Jr. supremacy in that category, but like, so let's say Sarsgaard probably isn't a threat to win, but he's certainly a threat for a nomination. And I'm curious like who that would kick out. You know, it's early days yet, obviously, but we don't have any set five in our minds, but. Um, he's definitely a contender if they can get people to see that movie. I think Chastain, who is also excellent in the movie, mm-hmm. I don't know. It's not nothing, no knock on her performance. I like how kind of quiet and minimalist it is, but I think the movie itself is maybe too quiet and minimalist to make Chastain pop in a field as crowded as Best Actresses this year. But I mean, you know, look, never count out Chastain. <laughs> yeah, seriously. Yeah, she really is wonderful in it. Um, the character's quite you know, harsh and and tough to warm to, um, as opposed to Sarsgaard's, who is just this really, it's a very vulnerable performance. And he's so good in it that I, I do hope that even though it is a small distributor, it is a small and minimalist movie, like you were saying, Richard, that it does, there is room for him, at least in the, you know, discussion around that category. He's been around for a long time. It feels like he's just starting to get honored and embraced as as a great actor uh, and, and one who's worth recognizing. He got his first Emmy nomination for Dope Sick. He's been doing, you know, getting a lot of good reviews for limited series like that over the last few years. And this is a showcase for him, for sure. And he's really excellent. And it does seem like as they keep getting him out there, people are paying attention. The campaign thus far is very focused on him and getting him into that base. And he's for sure supporting. Yep. Yeah. I mean, does it you feel could probably <laughs> no no i mean it's it's mostly through her point of view he could run and lead you know it wouldn't be any different than lily gladstone running and lead for instance but he's definitely fairly in supporting supporting actor is so crowded this year and i don't think it has been for a while and so i'm already kind of sad imagining who peter sarsgaard might kick out like um charles melton or somebody like that who we're kind of rooting for on the fringes yeah i was thinking about like what? What is his path? And Brian Tyree Henry getting nominated last year mm-hmm. in a two-hander with an Oscar winner, very small minimalist movie. Yeah, that's how it happens. Of course, that was a movie distributed by Apple. This is not distributed by you're Apple. Saying, but you're saying catch up isn't quite there on their like market cap. You know, we don't have evidence for or against. <laughs> so, <laughs> and from what I understand, there is going to be a real effort here, and there is some money behind it, uh, as much as there can be. So we'll see. Yeah. I'm Chris Murphy. I'm Richard Lawson. And I'm Hilary Busis. We are from Vanity Fair's Still Watching Podcast. Next up, we're watching the new HBO show, The Regime. Madam Chancellor, let's keep the gloves on. This is not a confrontation. We're just saying what's true. Academy Award winner Kate Winslet is our chancellor as she leads a faux European autocracy in turmoil. We'll be watching week by week as the regime unravels. And we'll be talking to the stars along the way. New episodes of Still Watching will drop every Sunday after the regime airs. 
Well, speaking of people that you spoke to in Savannah, David, we had a listener flag something for me about the screenplay for Origin that I had missed. I think it was out there by the time we recorded last week, which is that Origin screenplay is being submitted as original and has been designated by the WGA as an original screenplay, which blows my mind. I don't understand (laughs) it. And we can get into that. But um, also, David, you've told us that uh, when Origin screened at Savannah, uh, it went over really well. And I think that's a contender. We've been kind of waiting to see it come rushing back. And this might be the moment. Yeah, we were talking about it kind of not disappearing after uh, Toronto, but there seemed to be a gap, whereas films started going to places like New York and London. Origin really had not been making any stops after its really initial run. And that may be because it had been up for sale. Mm -hmm. Neon acquired it. It did its, you know, Venice Toronto run. And then it just started planning for what would come next. Uh, I did quite a few Q and A's in Savannah and origin was closing night. It was the last one. And it was, I feel pretty comfortable saying the strongest response that I saw to a movie, you know, the entire audience, which seemed to be full, uh, stayed for the Q&A. At the end, she got multiple standing ovations. Ava DuVernay did. Uh, she was also honored um, at the festival. And it was a very emotional evening, from what I could tell. Yeah. And that's the thing about that movie, is those last 30, 40 minutes come together in a way that can overwhelm you. And to me, it is the biggest question mark of this season. It has a pretty visceral effect. And it hits for people. It hits for an audience. And Neon is really good at this. And, you know, they had a, a team there in Savannah behind it. So I, I think they are really working to get it out there now. I mean, I think you guys know, uh, I mean, we all do the power that it has in that end. Like, we all saw it at a press screening together. And, like, you know, it was, it hit even a group of cynical journalists. And I don't really understand why it hasn't been going everywhere because it kind of feels like it could have had that moment a couple weeks ago. But maybe. That tactic of now showing it in Savannah. I guess it must have filmed in Savannah because it that's, did. Yeah. yeah. Well, she, it, it, they went to Virginia the night before, and Ava had told me that this was her first weekend of doing anything since that initial run. So yeah. now they're kind of foot on the gas. Yeah, they're really seizing their moment. I mean, I, I feel like we've talked. I can't remember if this has been on micro, mic or not. You know, the idea of like the big emotional sweep for a best picture winner. That's kind of what you need to like get over the finish line in the last couple of years, even in something like Parasite, which is not really nakedly emotional, but kind of gets you there in the end. Um, I think that's a power that we shouldn't underestimate. No, I mean, especially because people like maybe the audiences of Savannah are, you know, screener watching audiences or screener going audiences are going to be seeing a lot. And it's not dissimilar from the film festival beat. And I mean, they don't have to write about the movies afterward, but, but, you know, you can kind of start to get in this kind of desensitized mode. And then when something breaks you out of that and makes you cry, even if you have technical issues with the film, that lingers. And, um, you know, there's also the matter of, um, people having a mind toward what's coming next year with the election and everything. And I wonder if if Origin uh, offers enough of a sort of political rallying cry uh, mm. that, in a way that a lot of movies this year don't have, you know, that we, we're not having the most like pertinent, you know, topical year at, at the movies uh, Oscar wise. So maybe that really benefits uh, Origin. Or even a war that's broken out that, um, you know, that's maybe a conversation we can have more in depth now. But I do think people's moods are really different now than they were even at the, you know, Telluride in Toronto. Right. One thing I find kind of exciting about this movie season is 
the films that do, you know, speak to that moment uh, that might resonate in that way uh, are unusual. Like Origins, a pretty weird movie. Ava will yes. even say that it is. It is not your typical film about discrimination, about marginalization that the Oscars embrace and that goes all the way, nor is, say, The Zone of Interest, uh, which is another one that I think will find a new sort of new fuel uh, in its campaign. But at the same time, um, they have people behind them who can push them in a way where they can be embraced along those lines. So that I find potentially nice dynamic for the Oscars to look a little bit outside of the norm for, say, an issue-driven movie. Mm-hmm. I've been thinking about, you know, Oppenheimer as a presumed best picture frontrunner and its kind of lack of emotional sweep at the end there and what could kind of be the spoiler that has that power, like Killers of the Flower Moon, I think has a similar issue where, like, it doesn't give you that rush of emotion at the very end there. Like, Poor Things sort of does, Um but I don't know that anything really can match origin for that specific quality. Maybe the color purple is one that will rush in with that. Napoleon, I have my doubts. Um, but <laughs> I, I, th- I think you, I think you have to 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 think about that as a real ace, ace up the sleeve. Well, I mean, it's possible that Academy members will watch the. I think it's the 1936 Olympic rowing team row to. I don't know if they win or not. Oh, the boys in that boat. But, yeah, the George <laughs> Clo- the George Clooney movie. I got a copy of that book, which my dad loves. So honestly, like dad beloved books are not something to sleep on. Sounds like a George Clooney adaptation to me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So we can't count that out. Um, but yeah, it, it is interesting to think in those metrics. I mean, I I don't think this is a topic for today, but like, you know, just in general, how the academy, especially the show. I mean, God, God willing, things are not where they are um, in March of next year. But like, how they react to to what's happening abroad and in Palestine and Israel. And I I just I don't know. I I wonder. I'm very curious to see how they respond to that or sort of engage with that if they chose to at all. Yeah, you imagine once the strikes are over, God willing, then then like you can kind of, you know, the, the mood of the industry can kind of be more attuned to global things. You wonder how that might change things. That's a good that's a good point. Um, so the short answer is that, you know, in in the telling that Ava gave, say, at this panel in Savannah, she gets this book, she reads it repeatedly, she's very challenged by it, very uh excited by it. And then she realizes the only way to make it into a movie is kind of by not making it into a movie and by instead telling the author's life story, which was done through interviews and long conversations and placing certain lines, certain ideas in the book in the context of her personal life. So I think it's like if you look at the structure of the movie, it's probably half the book, half her life. Um, that sounds like an adaptive screenplay to me. Well, we will leave it to the Academy to decide, but... Okay. <laughs> You're I, not going to weigh in here? Well, I mean, I, I don't know. This is a question for a lot of screenplays this year. I think that The Bike Riders is another... Well, I don't even know if it's coming out this year anymore. Yeah. But, you know, Jeff Nichols... I had done a panel for that film, and Jeff Nichols tells a pretty clear story about how he was inspired by this book of photos and the characters specifically drawn from that book for the movie. And then it is also being pushed as an original screenplay. So I don't I don't really know where the Academy is going to land on all these different examples. Barbie, of course, being the most pertinent because that's the most, you know, assured to be nominated in whichever it ends up being placed in. It's very complicated. And clearly there are a lot of there's a lot of interest in pushing 
how an original screenplay is defined. Because I know there is a lot of frustration with the Academy's pretty rigid determination of what an original screenplay is. This was a big thing with Moonlight, of course, when it wanted to be pushed in original and that couldn't happen. I mean, I do think if you look at the competition and adapted, like American Fiction, Killers of the Flower Moon, and Oppenheimer is pretty formidable. I I, I can Mm -hmm. see why you're like, well, let's, you know, take our path out of this. It's really what it felt like Barbie did. Um, I mean, I think you're right that like rethinking rigid definitions of like what you take inspiration from, because obviously no screenplay ever just comes from whole cloth. Like people are basing on things in their lives and inspirations and everything like that. But I like having two screenplay categories. I don't want to tear down these walls entirely. So I want to figure out a way through this. Yeah, I agree with you. And it's a very, it's kind of a long shot, right? To actually look at a movie that is drawn from a book explicitly and say, this is not actually an adaptation. I think that's a pretty difficult case to make. And I do not suspect that the Academy, based on the way they've operated in the past, will grant that leniency to origin or the bike riders. That would be my guess. It feels about as adapted as the movie adaptation, which is based on a book, but also not based on a book. And I do believe one best adapted screenplay. Yeah. I mean, every adaptation is different from the book. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> By definition. And, I, and I think that category, like, it gets more interesting if you have more inventive adaptations, right? Like, if you accept, like, we are basing this on an existing work and we are really, you know, flying out into a different direction. I think that is a more interesting way to approach that category. Mm-hmm. While we're on the topic of screenplays, which, of course, we talked about in much more depth last week, um, we got a listener question from David that I just wanted to flag because I don't 100% know the answer, though I think I have a hunch. Um, He basically asked, do the voters judge based on the actual written script? Is it the script that is sold, the shooting script, or purely what ends up on the screen, which presumably has a lot of the director and actor stamps on it by then? Or are they triangulating from what came strictly off the written page and trying to judge off of that? I think it's a really subjective question. I think if you ask different voters, they would have different answers for like whether they can just read the script and know if it's the best, you know, screenplay they want to vote for or if they have to use the movie itself. Um, For the specifics of it, like I'm sure it's not the sold script like that. That can change a lot. And I don't I don't even know that they're given the shooting script and like if they would have that, you know, when we receive bound copies of scripts from studios as part of their FYC campaigns, it usually really matches what's on the screen. So my guess is that it's kind of a, a script written based on what actually made it to the film. If if you think of like alleged credit disputes over past Oscar winners, like a 12 Years a Slave, that was a big thing, or Selma, I believe. Up um, in the Air, I think is another up one. Up in the Air, yes. The root of those disputes is protections that the Guild has for the original writer, for the screenwriter, where the script is sold, the director may – you know, change things. The director may, you know, actors may improvise, but the credit still goes to the writer with the finished script. And that is to say that the Academy's judging the the final product based on the credit that the screenwriter may have, you know, that is very, very, very protected, regardless of what the director's impact is, say. Yeah. Yeah. And I know that I believe Academy members can request scripts, yeah. And so yep. if some some are really diligent, maybe screenwriters in the nominating category, you know, who are doing the nominating, maybe they are diligent about that. But like, I don't think it's a requirement. I mean, you know, I know from critics groups and whatnot, like we're not pouring over scripts. I mean, we're we're based on what what we hear on mm-hmm. on the screen. 
Yeah. And that and it's another place where like, you know, the line between writing and editing becomes really tricky because like if an editor cut out a scene or like made a line land in a way that's funny that it wouldn't have necessarily from the page, like that's to the editor's credit, but you might chalk it up to the screenwriter and that's just kind of how movies work. Yeah. Yeah. And things change on the day, which is why it's so chilling when some projects during the writer's strike were like, no, we had finished scripts, so we we just went ahead and shot. And it's like, oh, okay, House we of Dragon. We haven't seen the results of that yet. We'll see how that goes. Yeah. yeah. So there's still lots of movies out in theaters to talk about and go see. We hope you're going to see all of them. But this set seemed like a good time to pivot to television for a little bit. Uh, thanks to the various strikes, it, it's a quiet TV season. Network TV is more or less non-existent. For now, hopefully that all ends soon. Um, but there's a couple of prestige shows coming up that will be uh, eligible for next year's Emmys. Not the not the next Emmys, then one after that, because we'll have two of them in 2024. One of two Emmys in 2024. <laughs> Someone like asked me that that logistically behind the scenes because they were trying to like make our you know our budgets for 2024 and like what we're going to send people to cover. They're like, are there going to be two Emmys in 2024? And I was like, absolutely. <laughs> Look forward to it. Unless there's uh, another strike. Oh, Jesus, David. You can't do that. Just saying. <laughs> Nothing is certain anymore. Nothing is certain. But what is certain is that there these some of these shows are on, are airing now. You can't take that away. Um so we'll talk about, you know, what's on now, what's coming. And I wanted to start with fellow travelers because um, David, you were kind of the you watched it really early and kind of were the first person to flag it for me as something worth watching. And you've done some interviews around it. It's airing now on Showtime. Is it a strictly week to week? thing like the first one's out it's really hard to know these days um but i do think it's really special um as a historical show it's kind of a a lavish show when it feels like we don't have a lot of those these days um but why don't you say what makes fellow travelers stand out to you you know how early i saw it i interviewed jonathan bailey and matt bomer for our first look yeah it has a different world (laughs) lifetimes (laughs) very different yes very different world um it's got the sweep of a pretty traditional prestige TV historical drama complete with, you know, timeline swapping, the sort of suspense as to where we're going to leave these characters, a sense of danger uh, across different time periods. And what I found fascinating about it is that it has all these components and I'm not, you know, a huge fan of that genre by itself, um, especially when it can be sometimes a little bit on the clunky side. But in this version, it's spiked with really good gay sex for starters and really frank depictions of gay men's sex lives and a really committed engagement interrogation of being a gay man in these different time periods in the thick of say the McCarthy era and it is set in DC. And so you, this sense of menace and the, Impact the immediate impact of the lavender scare is very immediate to the characters who are played by Matt Bower and Jonathan Bailey. I found that really compelling. It's a really unusual combination. Uh, again, we just, even the way we we're talking about origin, it's like it's an issue-driven drama, but not one. I hadn't seen one that looks or feels like this that has the components of you know just queerness that this show does. It's. It's fascinating. It doesn't always work, but I found it a really ambitious swing that at times really moved me and at times just sort of made for really good escapism. So it it has a lot going for it. Well, it feels like the kind of gigantic story that could have been squeezed into a movie 15 years ago, but really does suit itself to a, a limited series like this. You get you get time. I've watched the first episode and you get like 
time to develop character and develop like a romantic spark between these two characters that like in a movie that needs to cover 30 years might not have enough time for that. So that like that authenticity that you're talking about and sense of like investment in the world it's depicting, that's what you want in a limited series, I think. Yeah. And it allows them to go to Fire Island for an episode and and actually draw from the creator's experiences, the producer's experiences, because a lot of this, while it is adapted from a novel, is really personally driven. Um, and, and that just adds a lot of scope to it, a lot of texture, and it really allows the performances, because that I think that is the big sell here, to dig deep. And that's, for me, what's always been the appeal of you know long-form television just giving actors a little bit more room to play. And definitely Matt Bomer, who is so perfectly cast in this, and Jonathan Bailey, who gets to show a really new side of his talent after Bridgerton shine, I think, in that regard. Man, when we get to talk about Maestro, Matt Bomer's not in Maestro that much, but he's having a very good fall. He's got some scenes. Yeah, he he pops. I mean, he's beautiful, so like he's not going to not pop. <laughs> um, Richard, yeah. your review of Fellow Travelers, which was like a little bit less effusive, but it made me kind of wonder if that kind of giant sweep in a series is maybe not what you look for. Like if there's something about the like the size of it that felt like it overreached for you. Well, first off, I just want to say I have been accused online by some Jonathan Bailey Stan accounts of deliberately Uh-oh. filing a negative review to get the Rotten Tomato score down. Oh, wow. And I just want to say on the record, that is true. That is why I did it. <laughs> he That's does it I... every week, guys. Where have you been? <laughs> it's why I do all things. I mean, I remember when I first laid eyes on Jonathan Bailey years ago in video of him and company, and I said, that handsome man, I want to take him down. Um <laughs> No, I'm Splat. kidding. Um, um, I I love uh, big epic storytelling. Um, I think my issue with with the the way it's done in Fellow Travelers is that um, you know the book is much more focused. I'm told on um, the McCarthy era stuff, and it, it does zoom into the future a bit, but that's more of a framing device. And really, the story stays local in this kind of gay romance, but also this political not thriller exactly, but sort of suspense. And I think that's really fascinating to take a sort of almost like Graham Greene-esque tradecraft story um, and put a gay kind of applique on top of it. I think that's really interesting. But unfortunately, this show, when trying to, uh, you know, stretch its arms out to encompass, uh, you know, 40 years of gay history, I think it gets very broad and very generalized. And it loses the really interesting specificity that we have in the early episodes that are much more focused on what's happening in the 1950s. The comparison I made was to um, the well-intentioned, but ultimately not great, I think it was 2017 uh, network miniseries, When We Rise, that uh, was written by Dustin mm. Lance Black, um, that was trying, you know, through the eyes of Cleve Jones uh, to basically talk about gay history from Stonewall to the present. And that's an, an, a noble ambition, but that is a lot of history and a lot of nuance to try to encompass in a few hours. And it's, I, I don't think it's really possible. I don't think you can do it. And unfortunately, that's kind of what uh, Fellow Travelers does try to do. And I think it loses the its individuality and, and particularly a sort of sharpness, a kind of edge um, that is maintained throughout because of the sex but otherwise, I think, is totally lost to gloopy sentiment and, um, you know, kind of the easy stuff that will make anyone cry. It made me cry. You know, the AIDS quilt, people suffering in 1980s San Francisco, you know, like this is that this stuff is um, is obviously sad, but I don't know that it um, it really feels unique and specific enough to this story to to merit inclusion. Um, I just want I wanted the weird, sexy, dangerous, morally compromised um, 50s you know, Washington intrigue story. That's what I wanted. And, and I think you could maintain a whole miniseries out of that. But Richard, they weren't allowed to be naked in When We Rise. 
Well, that's, yes. That's I mean, the, the sex aspect advantage. of the show, the sex <laughs> aspect of the show cannot go understated. I mean, it is <laughs> it is the most like sex forward uh, thing of its ilk that I've. I mean, you know, prestige project that I've seen. I think ever maybe um, at least in, in gay terms. Um, but I think yep. that that unfortunately that sex starts to work against it in that like here you get this interesting power dynamic when they're in bed together the show starts to feel really edgy and transgressive and whatever. And then it yaws wildly back in the latter episodes to this sweeping sentiment and these kind of like this goopy recitation of historical dates and facts and like, oh no, Dan White, the Harvey Milk's killer was just only got a manslaughter conviction. And and we, it's like we have to hit these timeline beats. Whereas with the sex stuff, that makes the show feel distinct and it, you know, particular to these characters. And so um, as much as the sex is appreciated on a sort of like, you know, contextual level, like it's rare that we ever get this. I think it weirdly uh, works in discord with, I guess, what the rest of the show is trying to do ultimately. It, it is funny because I, when I, when I started watching it, like say you have that first episode and I'm half like, wow, my grandma's going to love this show. And then the other <laughs> half is like, Oh, I need to I need to recommend this with a She might love it. Maybe five. just don't watch it with her. You guys can have separate views. I, I won't. Uh, rest <laughs> I won't. I don't need to explain the nuances of bottoming as this show really <laughs> you know digs into with uh admirable uh depth. And I completely take Richard's points. For me, I found that the early work done in those first few episodes and particularly the McCarthy era, which I think everyone would agree is the strongest part of the show and the most and the freshest. To me, it, it laid more of a foundation and it it made me really invested in this relationship in such a way where it does get more sentimental and more typical and conventional in its shape. But I had that level of investment in these characters and I felt like enough work had been put into them as interesting human beings where I was able to get through it with a little bit more um, respect for that trajectory um, and and a level of investment that for me maintained. But I think it is definitely safe to say that that is the path that goes down and others may not be as as warm to it at the end. I think that's fair. You think we're getting back to Showtime's old reputation for sex that I guess HBO shared it as well. But like I'm looking back through like the Showtime 2000s classic, like Queer as Folk and the All Word being really big ones or Californication. And they they had a show called Masters of Sex. I don't remember how explicit it got, but it's right there in the title. Um, but, you know, lately it was clinical. But yes, it was sure. very explicit. <laughs> but like their hits lately have been like Yellow Jackets and um, Dexter and stuff like that. So maybe yeah. there's a there's a swing back happening here. I don't think there's a ton of sex on the shy, though I haven't watched that in a while. Um, they are bringing back Ray Donovan for an all-nude season, which I think will be interesting. <laughs> That's John Voight, here we come. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, it's going elsewhere in the TV calendar. Uh, Richard, how explicit is this season of the Gilded Age? Like a lot of nudity on that one too, right? I'm surprised they were allowed to release it in this country. I mean, obviously it was it was it was filmed in international waters. Uh, that's the only way they could skirt around various decency laws. But um, no, it's disgusting. It's depraved. Um, no, there is. I will say, uh, you know, Julian Fellows is maybe the most sex phobic person on the planet. Um, he. <laughs> Every time people have sex on his shows, they get punished in some way. Um, he might claim that that's just because that's the times, and it's like I don't know, Julian. <laughs> but um, but there is there is actually somewhat overt reference to sex on this season of the Gilded Age. That is, and and I'll, I'm not. I mean, 
spoiler alert, cover your ears for a second if you don't want to know. It does involve Laura Benanti. Wow. <laughs> Scandal. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, no, no. The Gilded Age is not something we go to for tawdry. Uh, um, <laughs> that is a spoiler. You know, viewing. But although there is something kind of tawdry in a different way about its maybe vague veneration of <laughs> aristocratic might and whatnot. But um, that's something I wrestled with when I wrote about it for season one and now season two. But I think in the end, the show is diverting and entertaining enough. And, and there are un- just a few enough moments of like genuine poignance that um, – I think it it is a worthy sit for those who, freaks who like that kind of thing. I mean, and I am definitely one of those freaks. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the d- depraved maniacs. <laughs> I haven't watched any of the second season yet, but I did see, I think it was Alan Sepinwall compared Carrie Coon's character to Walter White, um, which made me more interested in... <laughs> Whatever's going to be going on with her. Well, yeah, I mean that. That's an. I like that comparison. I mean, I think the thing that um, you know, I spoke to uh, an executive producer and one of the directors uh, for a first look I did for the show last month. Like that, you know, the show is not trying to go hard on like being a social drama. It's not a terribly political show. Its existence is somewhat political, I suppose. But like, but you know, in season two, they do go further in addressing the fact that um, the Russells. So that's. Um, you know, Lady Bertha Russell, or she's not a lady, but, you know, played by Carrie Coon and her husband, uh, George, um, he's a, you know, a railroad magnate, a a sort of robber baron type. And, um, you know, at this time in the late 19th century, there were union efforts, and these guys brutally quashed them, and, uh, or tried to, and uh, the show does bring that in. And so through that lens, it's like, wait, we're kind of been rooting for George and Bertha, be, rich as they are, because in society of the Upper East Side, they're kind of the underdogs. But then this season is like, right, but they're doing horrible things. <laughs> and so mm-hmm. how much do we really want to root for Bertha to successfully open the Metropolitan Opera and be its sort of like grand benefactor? Because like her money is all kind of soaked in blood. Uh that sounds like Killers of the Flower Moon right here. Just like American myths getting dismantled <laughs> right and left. It does feel like the Gilded Age is kind of picking up. Like there, it's like a trending topic that we've been told we should cover. So maybe it's, you know, in this post-succession HBO world, like kind of and, like and just like that. Like it's going to get those eyeballs who don't really have anything else to watch on that channel right now. I mean, I think with both that and Fellow Travelers... And maybe the whole reason we're doing this fall TV preview is it's been a really quiet few months mm-hmm. in the world of good television. And it is exciting to have actual stars and actual production design and, yeah. and shows that are worth engaging with, uh, which is not to say there haven't been any over the last few months, but it, there's been a real dearth of quality programming. Uh, or programming is just people are talking yeah. about. Well, and something yeah. interesting about Gilded Age is that like, I kind of assumed – as I had sort of with And Just Like That, unfairly, that like, oh, who's really watching The Gilded Age? I don't really see people talking about it. But then it came back for season two. And apparently, I was told by people involved with the show that like, they really upped the budget. HBO gave them a lot more money uh, for costumes for and them. sets and stuff like that. And so, th- so it must be popular, um, which I think is interesting. The Run for Revoke is where you'll meet all the most exciting people in fashion and culture. I am Fran Libowicz. Um, who should be the mayor of New York? We all support yeah. that. We support that. <laughs> <laughs> Very nice. Nikki. Yes. It's been really great she being in this beautiful pink room. All right, Asher, can you hear us? I can hear you. 
right. Can you hear me? We can. We can. All right, here we are. <laughs> On the podcast, you'll learn how Vogue really works. Sometimes we'll come in for a second or even third run through until we are AWOK. Can you tell us what AWOK means? It means um, A-W-O-K, and a winter OK. I'm Cho Minardi. And I'm Chloe Mal. And we're the hosts of The Run Through with Vogue, where fashion and culture collide. Join us. It's AWOK. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, well, to look a little bit forward on the calendar, as promised, um, just going to kind of go in chronological order of other big shows that are coming up. Um, All the Light We Cannot See premieres on Netflix this week. I have not seen it. I read the book. I've heard not much good about this one, which is a bummer because um, I feel like that book has potential. Um, I can't remember if either of you guys have actually seen it or if we're just all reading the same buzz. Not much yeah. good. I, mean, yeah. I haven't seen it, but I mean, the book, I think, is kind of kind of gloopy. Uh, I read it. Um, hey, what's wrong with Gloopy? No, you like Gloopy sometimes. I know, but I know there's nothing <laughs> wrong with that necessarily, but I just didn't like its version of Gloopy. And uh, I read it while I was traveling alone in Paris. Ooh. So it was like kind of a, a good place to read that book. But yeah, I don't know. I, I have some reservations about how to adapt that. It's it's so sprawling and intricate. And, um, you know, even given multiple episodes, uh, as fellow travelers shows, it can be hard to hold that much at once. Yeah. Richard is anti-gloop. Well, He's anti-gloop. then perhaps The Curse yeah. is the show for Richard. Um, <laughs> that's also coming to Showtime. It premieres on November 10th. It premiered in part at the New York Film Festival or adjacent to the New York? No, I think it was part of the film festival, um, which is very interesting, but it's got a good profile coming from um, Nathan Fielder and Betty Safdie and Emma Stone. Emma Stone just absolutely everywhere right now. Um, I don't think any of us have seen it, but a lot of people who we know and like and work with are big fans. I really don't know what we're in for but i can't wait i mean a dark comedy about a couple that i forget if it's either they're on an hgtv show or they want to be on an hgtv show yeah it does seem up your alley like that sounds amazing and you know emma stone is obviously uh one of the uh one of the big names of the season so i'm very eager for that one for sure yeah um, David, you got to look at Murder at the End of the World, which is Britt Marling of the OA, which many people loved, is involved with as a creator and, or on some creative level, right? Yeah, I guess we can't talk about it yet uh, in detail, but it stars Emma Corrin in what I think is their best role since The Crown. They play this sort of amateur sleuth slash hacker uh, who gets embroiled in this murder mystery. You, if you see the trailer, you can see the series shot and is set in Iceland and takes full advantage of that really gorgeous locale. Um, and Britt Marling did the OA, of course, which uh, was a kind of beloved too late uh, Netflix thriller um, that was canceled um, and had a whole Save the OA campaign oh, yeah. uh, sprout out of that. Um, but this is being distributed by FX and Hulu. It has a really good you know, support team behind it. It stars Clive Owen. Marling is in it in a pivotal role. Um, also, Harris Dickinson is in a big role here. Um, we all love Harris Dickinson. So, yeah, I mean, I'm very excited for this one. Um, the OA is one of the strangest, most, you know, sort of audacious shows I've seen in a long time. Uh, you know, one of those shows that has like fervent fan base that has launched campaigns to save it on, you know, in vain. But um, I think what's most exciting about what uh, those creators, including Britt Marling, do is they really play with the structure of television. 
uh, narratively. I mean, you know, multiple timelines is nothing new exactly. It's maybe, it's probably overused at this point, but they do that, but also some other things. They really alienate the audience from information. I don't know if this show is going to be the same way, uh, you know, but but the OA, you know, famously opening credits 50 minutes into the first episode or whatever it was, like, you know, that kind of fun stuff that um, <laughs> I'm really looking forward to. They These people are, are really like singular minds in television. And um, it doesn't always work. I mean, not, not everything on the OA worked, but um, as anyone knows who like me, burst into tears when those kids started dancing in the cafeteria in season one. You were like, wait, how did I think this was so dumb? And now I think it's so beautiful. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm hoping for some sort of similar revelation um, from this new show. Um, well, speaking of Emma Corrin, uh, The Crown returns shortly after that. Uh, Murder at the End of the World premieres November 14th. The Crown Part 1 is November 16th. Um, that's four episodes, which we may have all seen and can't talk about in detail yet mm-hmm. um but Emma Corrin's no longer on the show Princess Diana is now played by Elizabeth Debicki and if you remember where season five left off um with Diana headed to a yacht with Jodie Fayed things are not gonna go great from here um I am really interested to see what the reception of the crown is as it heads into its final season you know season five premiered right after the queen died and it felt very muted um and I think this season is better and I can't really put my finger on what it is because the crown is so consistently glossy and about these emotionally stunted <laughs> rich British people um, but I do think there's there's some spark and energy in these first four episodes that might bring it back into the conversation more it's also probably not too much of a spoiler to say you know you can see it in the marketing there's a really s- clear singular focus on Diana yeah. in these four episodes that gives it a propulsion yeah and then the uh, the final six episodes of The Crown will be released in December. I didn't write down the exact date, but roughly a month after that, um, which will be another interesting thing. You know, it's kind of like the um, the Stranger Things gambit, but they're not splitting themselves across Emmy seasons. They're just, I think, trying to give those first four episodes room to breathe, um, which I think is probably a smart tactic. And it'll be interesting to see how it plays out. Yeah. And if people listening to this are thinking, gee, I wish I could hear a lot more about The Crown. Mm. <laughs> uh, you can listen to Still Watching uh, me and uh, Hilary Busis and Chris Murphy and other special guests will be breaking down. I think we're going episode by episode. We're trying to still figuring out how that's going to work because multiple episodes will be out at once. But um, yeah, we're going to do The Crown uh, for still watching and um it should be fun uh you know vf has never covered the royals before so we're just gonna have to see how that goes no we have no princess diana archives to draw on unfortunately all right also in november fargo is coming back for its fifth season which is wild to me that we're there um i kind of left off on this show a while back but i'm hearing some people saying that they felt drawn back in by this new season john ham is starring which is very personally exciting to me um Jennifer Jason Lee, which is very personally exciting to me. Yes, see, there's something for everybody in this new season of Fargo. Um, I, I mean, are, where are you guys on your Fargo viewing? Is this an event for you too? Um, I loved seasons of it. I lost the thread, I think, during the last one. Maybe is that the one with Chris Rock and yeah, people and and Jesse Buckley? Yeah. Um, that one for some reason I couldn't quite get into. But is it the second season with Kirsten? Um, yeah, the Kirsten Dunn season is amazing. Um, the first season's great. I, I I even love the weird. Was it the third season with Carrie Coon and David David Thewlis, where he has that horrific monologue at the end about how basically there's no point in ever trying to do anything good in the world, <laughs> uh, which you know kind of I don't know doesn't resonate. But I don't know what the word is. But anyway, it it certainly haunted me. Um, so yeah, I'm I'm eager to, to to dive back in. I think Noah Hawley, um, if nothing else, does interesting things. 
and uh, I I'm intrigued to see you know how this Fargo world can kind of keep chugging along this many seasons in. I'm hearing from a lot of people that there is a an excitement to get back into Fargo. I think season four for a lot of people, it was it was as you say, Richard, just harder to get into. Um, I don't think it came together as well. Uh, even though there were some great, like Jesse Buckley was great in it. There was a standalone Ben Wishaw episode, which hey. was wonderful. But other than that, I do think that it lost a lot of buzz. I don't think it really got many Emmy nominations. So I'm pleasantly surprised that there is such a readiness to get back into it. Because a lot of times when shows fall off like that, it's hard to pick that steam back up. But I don't think this one will have that trouble. And then one other title to throw out there, which technically is not coming until next year, but speaking of uh, long-running anthology shows, True Detective is back for season four. It has a premiere date of January 14th. Um, it did feel, I think it was actively delayed by the strikes in some way, um, which makes sense. you got Jodie Foster. Jodie Foster really having a winter, um, which is very exciting. Um, and, I, and that's another one, I think, where... It, it lost the plot a little bit. People kind of felt burned by where that show had gone. But um, Jodie Foster is a detective in Alaska where it's night all the time. I'm in. Sign me up. Oh, yeah. Yeah. New writers, too. Yeah. Issa Lopez, who's the kind of showrunner for season four, she's like a really highly regarded writer and director in Mexico. Um, so I'm really curious to see what she brings to it. I'm, I'm really curious to see what a woman's perspective brings behind the camera brings to that show. Um, mm-hmm. I like a lot of what Pizzolatto did, but like there were some gaps or something in there that I think I, I, I'm just interested in a perspective shift. And obviously the past, uh, well, the third season, which was really great, I think um, kind of underlooked um, that's set less ge- like climate wise, but the first two seasons are very like hot and sweaty, <laughs> you know, and yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm really curious to see what cold does to this, this kind of um, philosophical metaphysical detective stuff. Uh, yeah, I'm I'm really excited for that. We are, I guess, we were all hoping that would be out this fall. That was originally announced to be, but um, look, H- HBO's yeah. got to move some stuff around so they don't have months long gaps in programming. I mean, we we keep talking about Emma Stone maybe winning a second best actress Oscar, which is unlikely. But imagine Jodie Foster like being primed to win a third Oscar while also starring on an HBO show that everybody's talking about. That's a um, pretty powerful combo. A winter where Jodie Foster is everywhere promoting a movie and a TV show. I mean, that sounds really fun. <laughs> let these strikes let the strike end so that this is possible, if nothing else. Okay, that does it for this week's show. We'll be back next week. We'll be writing about all of these TV shows, and you can actually find um, some kind of rundowns of what we know about a bunch of these seasons on VF.com. If you, you know, Google them, True Detective, Vanity Fair, you'll find it. Um, There's lots of other stuff that we're doing at VanityFair.com, of course, Um, and we are on social media at VF Awards Insider, and you can find me at Katie Rich and Richard. Rye Laws. And David. David Canfield, 97. Our editor and producer is Brett Fuchs, and this week's award for the best description of what we say to awards voters who say they haven't seen enough movies at the end of the year goes to David Canfield. Catch up. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. 
What are you guys excited to cover in the next few months? There's a new uh, translation of The Iliad that's coming out, Emily Wilson. Oh. Really excited to see whether I can read The Iliad again, whether I'm that literate. I'm, I mean, the jury is out. I can't wait to hear Adam Driver go again in an Italian accent in Michael Mann's Ferrari. <laughs> he can't stop. I mean, and, and bless him. I can't wait. Molto bene. Molto bene. <laughs> <laughs> we hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. You really don't want to miss this. Don't. Don't miss this. Don't miss it. See you soon. <laughs> Thank you.